Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 57. As you are able, you please stand for the reading of God's word. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storm of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down and amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When we come to the book of Psalms, uh, what we find, as many of you know, is a, a vast array of music and of poetry that God has given graciously to his people. And he's given it to us so that it would be, as it were, a hymnal to us or a prayer book. And as we flip through the Psalter, all 150, what we discover is that there are psalms for every aspect of life. There are psalms oriented toward praise and thanksgiving, and there are psalms that are oriented toward lament and petition. And sometimes, when we're flipping through the psalms, uh, what we notice is that there's very little context given to us as to why or when the psalm was originally written. But in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 57, we actually get a little bit of insight into those very facts. Why was this particular psalm written and what was the context that was being taken into consideration? And we can actually see that if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 57 because sometimes we're afforded what we call a superscript. And in this superscript, prior to the reading of Psalm 57, it says, To the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And the superscript is really quite remarkable because we actually have this story chronicled for us in 1 Samuel. And you can find that if you would like to read it later in 1 Samuel chapters 22 through 24. And just to give you a little, the Cliff Notes version, in this aspect of Samuel, what we read is that even though David had offered nothing but faithful service to King Saul, Saul had grown obsessed with protecting and extending his own glory in Israel. And what that did is it created a paranoia in Saul. He was concerned that since David had already been anointed to be the next king of Israel, that 
he was concerned that David was conspiring against him. And he had all these voices speaking into his life, even though all of these voices were saying falsehoods and lies. Yet despite the truth, what we see in 1 Samuel is that Saul rallied his armies together and he sought to kill David. He was hoping to do that so that he could secure his reign in Israel for himself and for his son Jonathan. And it says that when David caught wind of this plot against his life, that he departed from there and that he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And it was here in this cave, fleeing for his life, facing what he describes in this psalm as a storm of destruction and like lying in the midst of lions, that David penned this psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning. And what's interesting is that despite the fact that David was surrounded by danger and being affected by profound injustice, this psalm is not one of despair and hopelessness. It is a psalm of great confidence. For just as David was fleeing into the caves of Adullam, spiritually, this psalm reveals that David was seeking and fleeing to find refuge in God. Instead of dwelling in his fears and in his doubts, this psalm is showing us that David moved from this place of hopelessness and desperation to a place of confidence and celebration. Because what David discovers as he's working his way through writing this psalm is that the way to find God's mercy in the midst of our suffering is to hide ourselves in God's promises. This is a lesson not just for David. God desires that all of his people recognize that the way to find his mercy in our sufferings especially is to hide ourselves in God's promises. And while you may not be running for your life this morning, each of us in our own unique ways know how terrifying and debilitating uncertainty and pain can be in our lives. There are times in our lives when at no fault of our own, circumstances around us and even people that we once trusted, they seem hell-bent on actually destroying us or affecting us in profoundly difficult ways. And while we, like David, we know that we should be turning to God in trust and in faith, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, what we find in the midst of that storm and in the midst of that fiery trial is that we find a heart that is not filled with joy, not filled with confidence, but a heart that is filled with fear, a heart that is filled with hurt, and a heart that is filled with confusion. And I think what we do is we find ourselves often asking this question, even though I know I need to be finding my hope in God and trusting his promises, how do I hide myself in his promises? What do I actually do when I am facing these storms of life? This is the question that Psalm 57 is exploring. It's the aspect of life that this psalm is focused on. And so whether you're in the midst of a storm this morning, or that storm is still on the horizon for you, I hope that this morning as we spend time in Psalm 57, that you will listen and learn as this psalm teaches us how we can hide ourselves in God's promises. 
and how we will find mercy from God in the midst of our suffering. But before we dive in, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word, for preserving it down to this very day from the pen of David to this morning's worship service. Thank you for how it has encouraged countless saints throughout the ages in how to approach your throne of grace in time of great need. Help us by your spirit this morning to be honest with you about our struggles and to receive from you the wisdom of how we can approach you and hide ourselves in your promises. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you and pray. Amen. Before we dive in, there are a couple of things I would love to point out. First is, I really, really encourage you that as we're working through Psalm 57, to be following along in a Bible that you may have. And if you're using our Pew Bibles, you can actually find this Psalm on page 477. And if you have children with you and you would like for them to follow along in the Jesus Storybook Bible, a really good parallel passage can be found on page 222. And this is... Uh, a, a a really, really great parallel pictures and uh, Jesus Storybook Bible to, to kind of parallel with this. Because the first thing that we see in this psalm is that David shows us that the way in which we hide ourselves in God's promises is through, wait for it, prayer. Now, I, I, I run the risk here if I point you to verses 1 and 2 where David says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Right? This first point can sound like a gross understatement because, of course, Eric, we're all Christians here. We know that the way that we run to God is through prayer. But what's remarkable about verses 1 and verse 2 is that David actually offers us a really important perspective on prayer that if we didn't know it, if we knew it before, I think we often forget this. Because I want you to notice here that as David is crying out to God in verse 2, that in verse 1 he says, be merciful to me, O God, for in you my soul takes refuge. And again, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. And what's really important to understand about these verses is that in the Hebrew, the type of verb that is being used by David is what we would describe as a perfect verb. So those words, I will take refuge or I take refuge, when we think about a perfect verb, it's a verb that had something happen in the past, something was completed in the past, and it has lasting effects in the present. And this might sound like an overly technical grammatical thing to observe, but notice what it teaches us about prayer. Notice that perfect verbs here are showing us that by crying out to the Lord, the act of the prayer itself is the taking refuge in God. That when we begin and we understand how do we hide ourselves in God, David is pointing out that the act of crying out for God's mercy, as simple as that sounds, is the movement of our lips, is the movement of our heart to hide ourselves in God and his promises. And we actually see and hear this same type of pattern being echoed in the New Testament when the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter writes, Humble yourselves, Christians, 
under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And we see this same dynamic at play in 1 Peter. The main verb in that sentence is humble yourselves. But how do I humble myself before the Lord? You cast your anxieties on him through the act of prayer. What David is saying and what Peter in the New Testament is saying is that just like the pains of hunger in your life remind you that you need to eat, and the pains of thirst remind you that you need to drink, the pains of our circumstances and our anxieties remind us of our need to pray. And as David's going to say, our need to take refuge in God. But I want you to notice this about David's prayer. David's prayers here are not generic and they're not ambiguous. David's prayers here are shaped by a clarity about God's character. Look with me again. If you go to verse 2 especially, you can see David's clarity in his mind about who God is. He says, I cry out to God most high. It's important for you to know that this is not David speaking poetically and not David trying to impose on God something that he wishes were true. What David is actually doing here is David is using a title, a name of God. He's speaking about God in a way that God had already revealed himself to be. You'll remember in Genesis 14, back when Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's stories are being told, that when the city of Sodom had a war raging around it, that Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive. And if you go to Genesis 14, what you find is Abraham goes to rescue his nephew from these warlords. And after Abraham was successful in rescuing Lot, it says in Genesis that a king named Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. In the midst of David's anxiety and fear, he is not crying out to some ambiguous unknown God. David is crying out to the God of Abraham, to the God of Isaac, to the God of Jacob, to God most high. God who is the possessor of heaven and earth, the one who delivered the enemies of Abraham into his hands. In the midst of his suffering, what David is doing here in his prayers, as he's taking refuge in God, is he is resting in what God has said about himself. And this is what we see throughout all of Scripture and is important for us to remember. True knowledge of God only comes through how God has revealed himself to us. Unfortunately, this is a basic biblical truth that our culture at large rebels against heavily. On January 3rd of this year, a congressman named Emmanuel Cleaver, who is an ordained Methodist pastor, offered an opening prayer for the 117th Congress. And as he was praying for the opening of Congress this year, his prayer 
used a lot of Christian words, and it revolved around a lot of Christian concepts, like blessing from God and God's grace and his sovereignty and that God is the creator. However, and I'll read this for you, when Emmanuel got to the end of his prayer, he showed his real colors. Here's what he said at the end of this prayer. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace. Peace in our families, peace across this land, and dare I ask, O Lord, peace even in this chamber of commerce, now and forevermore. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and gods known by many names, by many different faiths, Amen and Amen. Now, before we get distracted by the awkwardness of how his prayer actually ended, don't miss the fact that what we just listened to was not a Christian prayer. It was a pagan prayer. What we heard was the emptiness of our culture's spirituality. Even though it had a lot of words that sound Christian, this was truly a grasping at thin air, looking for any God the world might offer to bring stability and hope to our nation. The Apostle Paul would describe this prayer like this. These people have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Plain and simple, this type of prayer is idolatry. Because as the modern hymn writer Bob Coughlin says, regardless of what we think or how we feel, there is no authentic worship of God without a right knowledge of God. Which I believe pushes in on us and asks us this hard question. To whom do you cry when the storms of life roll in? Because suffering has a profound way of exposing who and what we worship, who we look to, what we look to for life and for meaning. And so, as you consider this, do not despair. David's psalm here is showing us that we do not have to live in ignorance. God, in his grace, has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself to us first and foremost in his Son. As the New Testament says that he is the image of the radiance and glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And the word of God in the Old Testament is always pointing us toward Christ. And the New Testament is always reflecting on Christ. God has revealed who he is and what he is like. And we find that testified to us clearly in his word, by his spirit, and especially in his son. And so what we see here is that David's prayer is not being shaped by ignorance, it's not being shaped by idolatry, but it's calling to mind the truths about God's character. And it's that clarity about God's character that is fueling David's confidence. Because now, David, his prayer is being shaped by a confidence in God's integrity. I want you to look at verse 3 and notice the repetition of David's confidence in the middle of his trial. He says, he, being God most high, he will send from heaven and save me. He, God most high, will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. 
this repetition we see also reflected in verse 6. When in verse 6, David reflects on the fact that even though traps have been set for him, he is confident that those who are seeking his life will end up falling into their own traps. And spoiler alert, that's exactly what happens in 1 Samuel. But what do you think gave David this confidence? Because it's important to understand, David's writing this in the darkness of a cave. He has not yet seen God fulfill these promises that he is so confidently saying, God will do these things for me. But what gave David this confidence? And David's confidence, I think, is actually being rooted in that last sentence in verse 3. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That word that is translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. Okay? It means God's unbreaking and sacrificial covenant love for his people. You see here, David knows that God is not only God most high, but he is also Yahweh. The God who revealed himself to the children of Israel. And David is deeply internalizing all of the things that God revealed to himself to the children of Israel. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. This is the key to David's confidence in the midst of his trials. At the heart of God's character is covenant faithfulness. And because David knew that God had anointed him as king, in effect promising David that one day you will sit on the throne of Israel, David was trusting God more than his eyes could see. And he believed that God was more trustworthy than his heart and that he would find mercy and he would find victory. And in the midst of our own suffering, we too need to remember how God has revealed himself to us in Christ. The profound ways that God has shown us his faithfulness in Christ. It's like that scene in the Pilgrim's Progress that when Christian and hopeful found themselves locked up in a castle of doubt and despair. They reminded themselves and rediscovered that the key to unlocking their chains was not to change their circumstances. It was to have a clear view of God's character and a clear confidence in God's integrity. Christian, hear this. God will finish what he started. God will bring to fruition what he has begun in, in you through Christ. So what does this mean for our lives? How do we apply this psalm and seek to embody it? I believe it begins by recognizing if we want to hide ourselves in God's mercies and have a confidence in his character and a confidence in his integrity, we need to be listening to how we pray. Albert Moeller once said, we can tell what people really believe by listening to the ways in which they pray. That is so true. We need to be considering, are our prayers shaped by a knowledge of what God is really like? 
how he has revealed himself in his word, or are our prayers just informed by spiritual ambiguity? Are our prayers shaped by a confidence and clarity around God's promises in the scripture? Or are they shaped by kind of an uncertainty as to how God moves toward his people? I think if we're we're all honest, we all recognize that we need to grow in this area of our faith. That like the disciples, we know that we need to turn to Jesus and we need to say, Lord Would you please teach me to pray? And I think one of the the wonderful things is that we have a great place to start. And that place to start is the spiritual habit known as meditation. I want you to hear the words of Charles Spurgeon, who is a great English preacher in the 20th century. I want you to hear his comments about the benefits of not just reading Scripture, but meditating on Scripture. Here's what he says. It is by digestion that the outward food becomes assimilated with the inner life. Likewise, our souls are not nourished merely by listening a while, hearing, reading, marking, and learning. All require inward digestion to complete their usefulness. And the inward digesting of truth lies in most part in the meditation upon it. Why is it that some Christians, although they hear many sermons, make but slow advances in the life of faith? It's because they do not take time to thoughtfully meditate on God's word. Just like our body requires digestion, our soul requires meditation. This is the spiritual habit that will help you to see God's character more fully, to have confidence in his promises so that when you go to him in prayer, it will not be empty, but it will be full and you will feel the effects of taking refuge in God. But David doesn't stop there. He actually says not only do we hide ourselves in God's promises through prayer, but we hide ourselves in God's promises through the act of praise. I want you to look here at verses 7 through 10. And David begins verse 7 by saying, My heart, after crying out to the Lord and knowing his character and his promises, my heart is steadfast, enduring, O God. My heart is steadfast, so I will sing and make melody. In verse 7, we actually see David moving from that place of desperation to a place of celebration. That if prayer is the mark of a seeking heart, prayer is the mark of a settled heart in God. And what's wonderful about this is that as we dig deeper into these verses, we're actually going to see that there is, like our pain in the midst of trial, a lot of complexity at work when we consider the way in which praise helps us hide ourselves in God. Because if you look at verse 8, what you're going to notice is that praise does not begin after David's suffering has ended. Praise actually begins in our lives in the middle of our pain. I want you to notice this in verse 8. He says, Awake, my glory. You could also translate that, awake, my soul. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. 
It is so easy to miss this point in the psalm. Ask yourself, when does David start singing? He says, I will awake the dawn. David, sitting in the belly of the cave, on uh, the run from Saul, begins singing in the middle of the night, when the earth and when his soul is still in the dark. You see, often when you and I face significant hardships, the way that we might describe the way it feels is that all of our lights have gone out, that it feels as if God is not there and that God is leaving us in the dark. And what's great about this is that David is acknowledging that that is a real and legitimate feeling. He's exploring this emotion. And what he is saying is the way in which we process these emotions in the presence of the Lord is that we fight for joy by awakening our souls with music. And in fact, it is exactly these songs of praise that David says, I will use these to awaken my soul from its darkness. I will use these to awaken the whole world to God's glory and God's goodness. Don't miss this, Christian. God has given us worship music. The songs that our worship team has been preparing this week, God has given you these this week. Not so that you would only worship him and glorify him when you're doing great, but especially when you are in the cave of despair. And so we need to admit that when we feel the most, or I should say the least interested in worship, this is precisely when we need it the most. That when we find ourselves feeling like we don't want to come to corporate worship because I'd rather just wallow in this misery, that is precisely when God's music that he has given to his people is the most relevant to you. He has not only given us this music to help us process, but he has given us this music to change us. This idea of being changed by the music that God has given us to center us on his character and on his promises is echoed in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Christians, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are commanded in scripture, sing. And don't just sing and mumble it. Sing like you mean it. Sing like your words actually mean something. I love the hymn, Come Thou Fount, because of this reason, right? Come thou fount of every blessing, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. When we come to gather as the Lord's people, when you're spending time in your daily worship, are you including music? Music is at the heart of how God helps us hide ourselves in his promises and take refuge in his grace. It's almost as if songs are the way in which God plants the seed of his grace in our hearts so that when we are in the middle of winter, we can be confident that the tulips will bloom in springtime. 
That is what God is doing through the Psalms, through the hymns, through the spiritual songs that he has given to his people. Because not only does our praise of God need to begin in our, pray, in our pain, we need to recognize that the praise of God is God's aim this whole time. This is what God is seeking to do in the world. I want you to notice in verse 9 and in verse 10, the confidence again that David has. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Where? Among the peoples. That means the people of Israel. I will sing praises to you, O God. Where? Among the nations. David, in verses 9 and 10, he's saying, your steadfast love, your faithfulness is so great, I cannot help but know that it will overflow, not just into my life, but into the lives of those around me, so that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. You see this emphasis of God's glory echoed in the chorus of this psalm. And the chorus is this repeated line, right? In verse 5, And in verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David is confident that not only will God deliver him from the dangers of his present situation, but he will fulfill his glorious promises throughout the world. This was what God promised to Abraham. And this is why David is so confident in that, that as we gather now as the body of Christ, we are in part a fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. He said, Abraham, in you, in your offspring, who is Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That God will be glorified by the Gentiles. And in large part, guys, that's us. We are a living proof of God's faithfulness to David in this psalm. Because not only did David actually receive victory in his trial over Saul, but God fulfilled his promises to place on David's throne a son whose kingdom would never end. And that's Christ. You too, Christian, like David, have received promises in Christ. You have received the promise of the forgiveness of your sin. You have received the promise that God will complete in you the process of sanctification. You have received the promise that you will be resurrected from the dead. You have received the promise that you will spend eternity with God and the fellowship of the saints in the new heavens and the new earth. You and I have been given wonderfully great promises to bank on. And our songs and our hymns and our spiritual songs are designed to root us and retune our hearts so that we would find our hope in those things. I love how C.S. Lewis observed in one of his essays, he said, for the Christian, the future is as certain as the past. Pretty great, right? The future is as certain as the past. And this is why singing as God's people is so important. 
But I want to encourage you not just to think about this in relationship to our time gathered together as God's people, because all two Keiko and the other worship leaders horn here, they're doing a bang-up job selecting biblically saturated, God-honoring hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. And we thank you guys for the ways in which you do that week in and week out. It truly ministers to our souls. But for all of us during the week, tomorrow morning is Monday, and you're not going to have these wonderful musicians and singers ministering to you. So what is going to be on your playlist? What music is going to be pumping through your Spotify account? Because make no mistake, the music that you listen to throughout the week is shaping you just as much as the music that you hear on Sunday morning. This is not a plug to only listen to Christian music, but recognize what you are doing when you listen to any music. You are opening your heart You are telling this radio station, shape me. Show me where to take refuge. Show me where to run when I am suffering. And I guarantee you that if you take their advice, you will find no hope, especially no hope in God. But as we center ourselves on the prayers oriented around God's character, And as we center ourselves on music meant to minister to our hearts and center us in God's promises, what we will find is that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Because to say that God is glorified in our suffering and that we find his mercy when we hide ourselves in his promises is just another way of saying through prayer and through praise In the midst of our pain, we hide ourselves in Christ. In the uh, book of Hebrews, the author writes these wonderful words, some that may be familiar uh, familiar to you. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The way in which we find help in our time of need The way in which we hide ourselves in God's promises is to go to him in prayer. Prayer that is oriented toward God's character as he's revealed himself in his word, saturated by meditation or through meditation. Prayers that are rooted in God's promises for you in Christ. And when you feel desperation and darkness surrounding you, up the ante. Hide yourself in God's promises by turning up the volume of your speakers and singing because it will profoundly shape your heart according to God's grace. These are the gifts that God has given us as his people, especially in his son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for all of the gifts that you have given us in Christ. And we thank you for even the gifts that you are giving us this morning 
the preaching of your word, the prayers that have been offered to you, and the songs that you are gladly giving to us to minister to our hearts. Help us to focus our energies and be active participants in what you are doing among us this morning by your spirit and through your word. Would you shape our hearts? Would you tune our hearts to sing your grace so that we might be rooted in your character and your promises and that as we look with the eyes of faith, you would show us how you are bringing to fruition all that you have promised you would complete for our sake. Would you be glorified by this body in this generation and forevermore. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.